pleased to be here with you this morning. Listening to this introduction, I once heard my friend from this state, actually, the former Vice President of the United States, Hubert Humphrey, who was similarly introduced in an exaggerated fashion, say that he, he was very sorry that his parents were not alive to have heard that introduction. His father would have thoroughly enjoyed it, and his mother would have believed it. <laughs> the advance notices for this meeting refer to my career in the law and my recent experiences in diplomacy. My mind, however, goes back to earlier days as a college and night law school student. My daytime work was selling magazines and full of brushes, perspiring in a steel factory, and steaming sweaters in a garment manufacturing plant. This is a program dealing with awards for excellence. But I recall the afternoon I was fired as a waiter at a summer resort in the Catskill Mountains because I couldn't make a good salad. <laughs> it took quite a bit of effort to persuade the hotel owner to keep me on as a busboy and as a dishwasher. Achievement for me was reached during my last year in college with jobs as a bookstore clerk running the cloakroom concession at the weekly Saturday Night Dances and representing on campus the New York Times and a local merchant renting tuxedos for the junior and senior proms. Mine has been a fortunate life, and an extremely varied one. Moving from the factory into the trade unions, organizing and arranging union education classes while studying law at night, opened up stimulating vistas for me. I recall going into scores of homes and interviewing women who were taking work home from factories and sewing buttons on sweaters at rates far lower than the prevailing legal minimum wage. These were fine, hard-working folk who had turned their homes into factories to help support their families. The war period brought with it soil conservation work serving as an attendant at an institution for feeble-minded children and volunteering to be a human guinea pig in a starvation experiment which brought my weight down to under 100 pounds. All of this leading to my becoming a teacher here at the University of Minnesota with its immense satisfactions being a teacher. And this introduced me to the then mayor of this beautiful city and the most enriching relationship of my life other than my marriage to my wife, Hubert Humphrey. Our association and friendship deepened as this cherished friend and teacher moved on to become a United States Senator, Vice President of the United States, and then a candidate for President of the United States. He was a politician who understood that in a democracy, the political process was the primary educational experience of the body politic. Always a teacher, he used to say, you tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. <laughs> and uh, seeing these lights 
in front of me here reminds me of his wife Muriel's admonition to him on many occasions, Hubert, a speech need not be eternal to be immortal. <laughs> but I must say to the timekeepers here that I learned a great deal from Hubert Humphrey. It is, however, not about yesterday and today, but about tomorrow that I would prefer to discuss with you, today and tomorrow. Let me therefore share a few experiences with you about my three years as ambassador representing our country at East-West meetings in Madrid. I was appointed to that task by President Carter and reappointed by President Reagan. And during that period, I spent close to 400 hours in private negotiations with Soviet representatives outside of the meetings. These were serious talks by serious people dealing with serious subjects. But the memories that I have are more human than that. I will long remember a brief coffee session that I arranged for a visiting congressional group with the head of the Soviet delegation, then a 75-year-old deputy foreign minister, a member of the Communist Party Central Committee, and former editor of Pravda and Dysvestia. The brief coffee period that we'd arranged became two and a half hours. Its theme was set by one member of Congress, a Catholic priest, wearing his collar, talking with vehemence, conviction, and eloquence about the persecution of Jews in the Soviet Union. I frequently contemplate the impression that Father Dryden made on the Soviet delegation that day. And there is the exchange that comes to mind with an Eastern European ambassador during which I talked about the 1,200 families seeking to leave his country for hours whose applications had not been acted upon by his government. A week or 10 days later, he came to me with 600 names, said their visas had been issued and the remaining families on the list would be acted upon within a matter of weeks, and they were. There comes to mind today a delivered a statement documenting the terrifying growth of the offensive, offensive Soviet military power. And at the conclusion of our session that morning, the head of a Warsaw Pact delegation came to me and quietly said, I did not know any of that. He did not question the facts presented by our country. And I will long remember the talk I made setting forth the profound differences between the totalitarian system of the Soviet Union and American democracy. I had first noted the great similarities between our countries, the Cossacks and the Cowboys, the fact that we had never fought a war against each other. My talk, in some ways, a lecture on political philosophy, was a plea for humanizing our relations. A few weeks later, at a dinner, an ambassador from one of the communist countries, with more vodka in him than was prudent, <laughs> took me aside to acknowledge the speech and to say that he was taking it home for his son to read. I conclude these brief and human recollections of one phase of an active public life by suggesting to you that you are indeed highly fortunate young men and women. 
You're fortunate not only because you have special gifts proved by your presence here today, but you and I are most particularly fortunate because we live in a great country, a free and democratic country. There is a continuing struggle in civilization to enhance that part of the human process that is represented by light rather than by darkness. No matter what we do with our lives, each of us will have the opportunity to make a contribution towards strengthening the forces of light in our families, our communities, our country, and in the world. We can express our gratitude for the good fortune that is ours by making certain that our children and future generations will be part of a world in which people can live in peace, freedom, and dignity. And I assure you that that future, to a very large extent, rests in our own hands. Thank you very much. There's a famous story in arms control negotiations about the walk in the woods between the U.S. arms negotiator and the Soviet arms negotiator. Do you feel like, as a negotiator yourself, that arms control agreements can be hammered out among uh, fairly low-level people in the government, as opposed to that summit between the President of the United States and the President of the Soviet Union? Or can these negotiations go on, or can they be successful without a summit like that? Let me first assure you that our two negotiators in the strategic area, Paul Nitze dealing with the intermediate range missiles and General Rowney dealing with the long range missiles are not low level negotiators. Both are extremely experienced people and experts in their field who have the complete confidence of the President of the United States. But they are also highly technical people who are aware of the intricacies of this very, very complex subject. And I'm convinced that it's important for people like that to have around the negotiating details under the guidelines of the President and the Secretary of State, which is the way it functions today. Because no President of the United States, no leader of a government in the Soviet Union, can know the technical intricacies involved in arms control negotiations. Let me say one further word about this. We're all anxious for peace, and we're all anxious for arms control negotiations as a step toward peace. But I think we must understand that the problems we have today are much deeper than the problems of the absence of a treaty on arms control negotiations. I, I, I listened to General Yeh yesterday, who very correctly said, if any negotiation is going to be successful, it's got to be verifiable, it's got to be mutual. The problem we have is that the United States is dealing with the Soviet Union, which is a society, a totalitarian society, a dictatorship society, which still is not convinced that it is necessary for them to make any concessions at all in order for us not to have the military strength that they're afraid of. And the reason they're not yet convinced that they have to make any concessions is because they fully are aware of the debates that take place, healthy debates that take place within a democratic society such as ours or within Western Europe. 
And they know of many forces within those societies that are asking our governments to make unilateral concessions. The Soviets, not fully understanding us, are waiting to see if it's necessary for them to make any concessions at all. I'm convinced in my own mind that once they see those concessions are necessary before we will make concessions, I'm convinced by my own mind that negotiations such as the kind you're talking about will be successful. As far as a summit is concerned, I am in favor of a summit, uh, even though we shouldn't put too great expectations on it. If I was sitting in that chair, I'd want to look the other fellow in the eye and see what he shapes up like. But uh, let's not get ourselves into thinking that a summit is going to solve these problems. They're much deeper than that. Who do you believe is the true power today in the Kremlin, Gromyko uh, or Chernyenko? The true power in the Kremlin, in my opinion, is not an individual per se, but an institution. The institution and the method of thinking and the, the process of decision making is based on Lenin's concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is a word, a slogan used to say that it is a group decision in the Politburo. And what we know today leads us to believe it's within a committee of the Politburo, which is the Defense Council of the Politburo, on which Chernenko is a member, on which the head of the KGB is a member, Mr. Ustinov, the head of the Defense Ministry, is a member, and Mr. Gromyko is a member. I believe that Mr. Gromyko's views on foreign policy apparently are today the dominant views, but I have no doubt in my mind that this handful of individuals, and you have to understand, they are really not responsible to people. They're self-selected. This is one of our great problems. But I have no doubt in my mind it's this institution of the Communist Party leadership which are the decision makers. And this is why you don't see any fundamental changes, let's say, between Andropov and the, and the day today. And this is particularly true given the fact that Mr. Chernenko is on in years and uh, may not have the time, even if he wanted to, to make an imprint on the history of his country, which sometimes in the Soviet system may take quite a few years. Thank you very much.